Hello, welcome to NANCAST. This is our very first episode, and I'm Jill, your host. Today, we're going to be talking to NeuroNICU experts about strategies to optimize neurodevelopmental outcomes. I want to bring to light how important it is to treat every NICU as if it was a NeuroNICU, but this conversation isn't as common as it should be. Investing in a strong neurodevelopmental program is essential for long-term outcomes. That's why we are starting our podcast with a series of conversations with people who are leading the way and are willing to share their expertise so you can learn to provide better neurodevelopmental care. I'm really happy to have one of the leaders in neuro-NICU development and a good friend of mine, Jennifer O'Malley. Thanks, Jill. I'm really happy to be here today to talk about why every NICU is a neuro-NICU. This is something that's personally important to me, as I'm a twin and we were born at 27 weeks gestation. So one of my main initiatives in our NICU is supporting neuroprotective care. So, Jen, why do you think this applies to every NICU? It's really important to focus on the whole baby, whether they're premature or suffered a birth trauma. We're very focused on, as neonatologists and NICU nurses, their respiratory drive and their feeding patterns, but we don't focus so much on their long-term outcomes. It's important to know that the rate of neurological birth trauma has actually increased in the last decade instead of decreasing. And so to support that, we need to support the whole baby and focus on their brain as it's growing. A baby's brain is creating billions of synapses daily. And if we're not supporting the synapse creation of that, we're setting them up for failure later in life. Exactly. That's why I feel like this is such an important topic that we're discussing today, because it's something, like you said, it's not a focus. Everybody's focusing on other issues where neurodevelopmental outcomes kind of take a back seat. So with that being said, what do you think a NICU nurse needs to focus on when they're caring for these very fragile babies? Our unit focuses on what we have deemed uh, the four pillars of neuro-NICU care. This is a topic that was initially broached by Kathy Sally Randall of Synapse Care Solutions. So it involves neuroassessment, neuroimaging, neuromonitoring, and finally neuroprotection. We all know what causes of brain injuries affect babies, intracranial hemorrhages, intraventricular intraventricular hemorrhages, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, periventricular leukomalacia. We know that it affects their long-term outcomes, but we're not doing anything in our NICUs to try and aid their brain development. The NICU environment in and of itself is a harsh environment. Every touch, every stimulation affects the baby on a long-term basis. So with neuroassessment, it's something a nurse is doing all day long during or all night long during their shift. Every time you're assessing your patient, you're doing a head-to-toe assessment. Your head starts with your neuroassessment. You're feeling fontanelles and sutures. You're seeing a pupillary reaction. Are they lethargic? Are they responsive? Do they have an active suck? And from there, you can further your assessment based on things that every baby has after birth. A newborn screen, for example, while not nationally regulated, each state tests for different things, but there's a core group of studies that are done, things that are follow-up by a pediatrician and are based on the baby's birth weight and gestational age or maybe done more than once based on your state's guidelines. 
We know that there's certain things that we can't fix. If a baby had a birth trauma and had hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or HIE, we can't fix the initial insult, but we can try to stop any further insults from happening. So that's why doing a thorough neuroassessment is really important to providing adequate care for your patient. We as nurses are the front line for this. The neonatologists look to guide their practice based on what our exam shows them. And with their input, we can then get neurology or neurosurgery involved and have a more encompassing exam of the patient. So it seems like this is something that NICUs of all different levels can do because it comes based off the nurse and the nurse's assessment. So you don't need to have a high-level NICU to be really focusing on neurodevelopmental outcomes. This is true. Even things that happen in a term well-baby nursery affect a baby's long-term outcomes. For example, pain control for a heel stick. It's something that you think is quick and doesn't have a lasting impact, but studies have shown that babies who are exposed early and frequently to pain do have long-term deficits related to that. It alters their neurologic receptors and their responses to pain later in life. It can cause different kinds of anxiety. So it's really something that needs to be a focus on from the time of birth through the continuum of care. So if a nurse is doing their assessment and they find something abnormal, what would be the next plan of action? So what what would we be expecting the neonatologist to do? What would be the next steps for the nurses? What can we anticipate our interventions to be then? Once we need to get neonatology involved, they can order different tests that can further the neuroassessment, which expand into which expands into neuroimaging, which is another pillar. So we know all preemies at a baseline get a head ultrasound, and it's followed as needed based on what it shows. Babies who suffer from HIE get a baseline MRI after cooling has ended. But there are other things that we can do imaging-wise. If you need to, you can do a CAT scan. You can do more routine head ultrasounds. Um, They're even working on fetal neuroimaging currently, which is a really cool trend that's coming in the NICU. On top of neuroimaging, there's more invasive neuromonitoring that can happen. So one of these, or some of these rather, are your bedside AEGs or your video EEGs. It's the gold standard of cooling, for example, that All babies should be on some kind of neuromonitoring during cooling and during rewarm. And at our facility, our neurologist recommends that we also keep the baby on a video EEG for up to 24 hours post-rewarming. It's something that has its setbacks as well as its advantages. Your video EEG is more all-encompassing. It delivers readings from multiple channels, and you can correlate it with vital signs and a video of the image of what's happening with the infant at that time. AEEGs are more succinct. It gives you a two-channel reading. It's something that a bedside nurse is able to be trained in to read, so it's a little more user-friendly in that respect. It gives you a compressed set of data, and you can kind of trend to see if you see any seizure-like activity. So are these nurses trained on how to read these AEEGs and EEGs so they can put their input when they're doing their interventions or their assessments? Is there um, training that's involved in reading these? Um, Because, of course, these would be on a more of a higher level NICU, your level threes and level four NICUs. 
Yes. Any NICU that has an AEG or is using that at the bedside should have a really um, robust program to teach their nurses how to read the AEG appropriately. We do know that while sometimes what looks like a seizure on an AEG can just be artifact, it's better to be more proactive in that situation than for instance, you have a video EEG that's on, it's running in the middle of the night, nobody at the bedside can read it, You don't. the baby is not doing anything clinically that relates to a seizure. So in the morning, neurology calls and said, oh, at 2.30, this baby was seizing, and now you're trying to play catch up. So the nurses really are the eyes for these neurologists and neonatologists to make sure that they're really doing an accurate assessment. Yes, the nurses are the front line. Everything that dictates care for this baby is coming from the nurse's initial assessment. So even the slightest change, such as the bulging font now, is something that's important to note. We can trend serial ultrasounds. Like I said, we can do MRIs and CT scans and our EEGs. What's really cool that's happening as a trend right now in NICUs is NEARS monitoring. So that's measuring cerebral oxygenation. It's actually something that's been done cardiac-wise since the 1970s post-op for any patients who were having any kind of cardiac surgery. But we're finding now that through something that looks as simple as a pulse ox placed on the head or on the flank to measure renal saturation. And this is something that even with the slightest fluctuation, we can track what's happening cerebrally related to blood flow. It helps for HIE cases. It's helpful for even babies with a simple PDA. A PDA is something that every baby is born with. Most term babies close within the first three days of life, but it's a prolonged issue for premature patients. So with NEARS monitoring, we can have a better understanding of what's actually happening in these patients' brain with their blood flow patterns through NEARS imaging. This is something that I know some NICUs have instituted. It's not something we're currently doing in our NICU. When we decided that we wanted to have a neuro-NICU program, we thought like, okay, we're expanding our unit. We're building this brand new unit. Let's have rooms that are designated to neuro-NICU patients. And we realized pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be efficient for our workflow or for our patients. As a referring hospital and surgical NICU, we say a lot that we're full of heads and guts. So we get babies who have post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus, who come for cooling after suffering from HIE, who are born with congenital hydrocephalus or other white matter injuries, and we need to treat them. Every baby at its basic core of neonatal care has a neuroassessment. So in doing this, we realized that really, and going back to the statement that every NICU is a neuro-NICU, it's true. Everything for our patient's care stems from their brain and their brain maturation. Premature babies respond to pain differently. Premature babies have different potential injuries to the brain than term babies have. Um, And it's something that we said, we don't want specific rooms for this. We're now under the understanding that we are a NICU, but we are saying that every NICU is a neuro-NICU, and we are treating every patient like we need to understand what we can do to better improve their neurodevelopmental outcomes. So this leads to the fourth pillar of neuro-NICU care, which is neuroprotection. 
And it's something that nurses kind of do inherently. You know, for a premature baby, you want to decrease stimulation. You don't want any loud sounds. You can cycle lighting or have minimal lighting. You want them appropriately positioned to maintain a midline flexed position with containment at all times. But you don't understand how much of an impact this can have. So, for example, as I said earlier, I'm a twin. We were born at 27 weeks. Positioning wasn't a thing in the 80s. It just didn't happen. You walked into a NICU and you can see every baby was kind of frogged out in their bed. So as we grew up, my sister had issues related to this. She actually walked on her tippy toes because she didn't have appropriate boundaries as a baby. And she actually had to have a cast on both feet for the summer to help um, release her contractures almost. We know that premature babies with neurological injuries are more prone to spasticity, so we can treat that with Valium to help release their contractures, especially if they suffer from severe post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus. So the, neuro- the concept of neuroprotection is something that a nurse should just be ingrained in their brain. It's something that when I'm precepting a new nurse that I really focus on because I want them to I want to set them up for success and I want them to understand that every touch, every interaction we have with our patient creates a lasting impact on their later life. I think that's so true. I, I, I think that most NICU nurses kind of focus on what's being done in the four walls of the NICU and they kind of lose sight of what happens after their discharge. And I, I think, you know, seeing um, patients when they come back and, and seeing how far they've come and, and what has um, and different effects of our care has made on them and their progress and their outcome is really important. And I think we need we tend to lose sight of that. So um, everything you're saying is really important. And I think the the main focus is, yes, every NICU is a neuro NICU. And, and we need to be having that in our minds at all times, every time we touch the babies. I think a lot of times with our preemies, we just focus more on position. Oh, they look great. They look comfortable in bed. But we're not thinking of the implications of everything that we're doing to these babies and their neurodevelopmental outcome. So, Jen, with you implementing this new program in your unit, um, what would you say some of your successes are? And also for people that want to start implementing this in their unit, what what were some of your barriers? Did you have staff uh, resistance? Was there resistance from the medical team? Um, you know, and were you incorporating a lot of different uh, disciplines like speech therapy, PTOT? You know, are you working in a team? Is it really had reached out to a, a a larger um, focus and and not just the bedside nurse. So we're really lucky. Um, Almost immediately, our nursing leadership and neonatology team bought into this concept, and they were really supportive of it. We have a neuro-NICU council that meets monthly. It's a committee that I'm currently the chair of. And we talk about ways that we can better improve our care overall and ways to create a lasting effect of change in our unit. As much as nursing and neonatology has changed, nurses hate change. No matter what you do, you could say the sky is green today and they'll still fight it even if the sky is green today. So true. Your traditional nurse is resistant to change. So the first thing we did is we noticed that a lot of people, even though we have a ton of positioning aids, we're really lucky that our hospital and nursing leadership kind of support us buying whatever we want and we need. 
But with that, people weren't using them or they were using them inappropriately. And it's this kind of like old school effect of like, well, a role used to be good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, it used to be good enough, but it never really was the best practice. So we kind of broke it down to bare basics. And we started to try and ed- educate people to remind them that we want to kind of nurture the neurons that we have. Again, we can't fix the previous damage, but we can try to make outcomes better by providing neuroprotective care. So we actually had a rep come in from our main products um, positioning aid group, and she gave an in-depth one-hour in-service to every single nurse. And we're so lucky that nursing leadership supported this because it was above everybody's status. It happened in conjunction with our annual skills fair. And I remember afterwards people coming up to me and saying, like, I had no idea I was supposed to position a baby that way. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of tracked that data. We were using iPad, the iPad tool. So it's a positioning assessment tool to show how well your baby is contained in a midline flexed position. And so after that education, we had a really great outcome and everybody was positioned wonderfully and we were like super excited. Well, since then, our NICU's expanded, and we have probably 50% more staff. So it's kind of become a constant struggle to make sure that they're getting the education they need, but they're getting it in a meaningful way that it's resonating with them. So it's something that every time we get a new product, we're trying to do education on that product. Or for our existing products, if we're seeing a trend that they're not being used properly, I'm encouraging our staff to have an in-the-moment, courageous conversation with that person and say, listen, I know that you mean well, but maybe try it this way. And this is why I think that it would be better. I also have people who text me at home. Hey, I have a question about this. How am I supposed to use it? Or this was in my baby's bed. I don't think it's appropriate. Can I take it away? I'm a night shift nurse, so I suffer from insomnia like probably every other night shift nurse, and I'm up at all hours of the night. And literally, I kid you not, last night I got a text about where certain positioning aid was kept and how to use it. But that's true. It's true because I think um, a lot of times people send out a blast uh, educational email with a PowerPoint. Hey, read the PowerPoint, sign it off, you're done, you know how to use it. But that's not true. We all know that. We really need to have that hands-on. So I think that really works when you have a rep from the company come or even just have some super users on your unit that can demonstrate how to use it, kind of help the newer nurses or, or people that are having difficulties with the, with the different products, and to make sure that you have ample education for those products. Because I know some units tend to have um, developmental rounding where they check on all their babies and make sure that the positional aids are right and they're right and they're used correctly and they're using the correct ones. So, you know, I think it's really important to to take a multidisciplinary approach to, you know, not just the nurses, but, you know, put put some of the ownership on, on PT, OT um, that are also providing some of that, you know, therapy and support for these guys. And there are programs that we're really fortunate enough to have. We have an assigned NICU PT and OT. We have a assigned NICU speech pathologist. We have a music therapist in the hospital who does a lot of work in our NICU. And recently we got our own designated NICU child life specialist. So we really have a good core team of people that can be a support. We also are really enforcing that we are using the integrative model of developmental care and we focus on the seven core measures. So protecting sleep, minimizing painful stimuli, um, skin care, family bonding, kangaroo care. Um, 
we are a March of Dimes hospital and lucky enough that every year, multiple times a year, the March of Dimes helps us sponsor a kangarooathon. And for two weeks at a time, um, every time a parent kangaroos, um, the nurse and the parent submit a ticket. And then at the end of the two weeks, th- they pull a ticket and somebody wins like a prize. Um, it's helped kind of engage our nurses a little bit because, no lie, nurses like free stuff. <laughs> um, but it also reminds them to promote kangaroo care at its simplest forms. Now, we do have a lot of chronic critical patients in our NICU, so we know that kangaroo care isn't appropriate for everybody. So we do offer facilitated tucking and containment and education to parents on how to do that appropriately. We also kind of joke that you need two nurses to do everything in our unit. Um, So it's as simple as you have an intubated patient, you want to turn that patient, you have somebody guarding your airway and someone helping you turn, but at the same time, you probably have respiratory with you, or we have clerks that are really helpful that are helping provide that additional containment. So, Jen, you mentioned something really important and about the parent involvement, family involvement. And I, I think that that's something that we really need to incorporate parents into our neurodevelopmental planning um, and neurodevelopmental, neurodevelopmental care as well, because they can really assist us um, with our care, helping with containment and, and making like a painful procedure, less, less uh, overstimulating for them. Um, so do you guys incorporate um, parents in your neurodevelopmental? care at the bedside? We try to as much as possible. Um, We are a chronic level four NICU, so we understand that not everybody can be there every day. You know, we encourage them to do things for themselves and take time for self-care. You know, we tell them it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, Nobody expects to meet us in the NICU. Nobody wants to meet us in the NICU, but you become part of their family by extension. And so... We have parents that are very engaged. Um, we try to offer breastfeeding for heel sticks. If not, we do have um, an order set in our online charting that nurses can enter a per protocol order for oral sucrose for pain management. And we noticed that instituting this and really complying with this policy has helped increase our use of oral sucrose. Bef- now, we do have some setbacks to that. Pharmacy insists that we keep it in the Pixis, so it's not as readily available as we would like it. But once this per protocol order is placed, it covers you for any painful procedure. So heel sticks for labs, IV sticks, LPs, um, even babies who don't tolerate you know, their head ultrasound, for example, or repositioning for a chest x-ray. These are things that we really want to focus on and make sure that the nurses are appropriately treating pain. We know that premature babies and babies who have chronic long-term NICU stays are at a risk for um, issues later in life specifically related to anxiety, autism spectrum disorders. So even though babies have neuroplasticity and their brains are constantly developing and molding, what we're doing in the NICU really does leave a lasting impact on their outcomes later in life. Yeah, nurses are, are the patient advocate. Nurses are the voices of these little guys that can't speak. And, and you know, I think it's really important that your unit supports the ability for the nurse to be able to administer sucrose for painful procedures and allow them to put that order in because they're the ones that are at the forefront of neurodevelopmental outcomes. And, you know, I think that's wonderful that they can support that and leadership supports that. Um, 
Yeah, and it's really something that, you know, we understand that, you know, not every NICU can have the expansive neuroprotective program that we're trying to have and establish in our NICU. So as a NICU nurse, if you want to do something specifically, it can be as easy as starting a QI project. And the QI is monitoring maybe how many painful procedures your patient had in the shift and how was it treated. Did mom breastfeed during a heel stick? Were they given sucrose for an IV stick? Was containment offered during a head ultrasound? And it's something that gives the nurses ownership. Um, I feel like a lot of times if, you know, respiratory or neonatology wants to do a new initiative in the unit, it takes a while for the nurses to buy into it. But it's a lot easier when your friend who's a nurse is saying, like, listen, this is something that I think we really kind of stink at right now in our unit. And let's try and develop ways to make it better. Exactly. I love QI. I think QI is a very powerful tool for nurses to see how much they can affect outcomes. And it's and it's pretty quick to see those results as well, too. And I think that gives you a lot of ownership and it it really builds a, a really high morale on the unit is, you know, we've made change and we've created this change. And, you know, even if you're working in a lower level NICU, like you are at the bedside, you are at the forefront and you have the power to create change. Just the little simple things that you're doing affect these babies for a lifetime. And I think that's really important. And I and it's, that's why I wanted to have this series and start with neurodevelopmental outcomes, because that, I think, is the core of what we're doing. We want to see these babies thrive. You know, it's one thing to be able to survive, but to thrive and, and live, like, amazing lives and they come back and see us, like, that just, that's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. Right. And it's something that, like, Yes, not every NICU is fortunate to have all of the supportive therapies that we have. And if it's something that nursing leadership or neonatology is having a hard time buying into, a QI support, like it gives tangible data data to say, like, listen, this is something that we can change. This is something that we can affect to help develop our babies. It's all about changing the culture of your unit. And it's really important that whenever we get setbacks in our unit, um, and like I said, our nursing leadership is really, really instrumental in this because they really support all of our initiatives, which is something we're really fortunate to have. But we are changing the culture of the unit. You know, we're changing the culture. You're providing developmentally supportive care at all times, whether your baby's on ECMO, your baby's post-op, or you have just a hyperbilly baby who's coming in from home because they're dehydrated and jaundice and they need phototherapy treatment and fluids. So every interaction we have with our patients is important. And it's important to remember that even though babies respond to touch, you need to read their cues and make sure they're having an appropriate response to touch. So it's something that a subgroup of our neuronicu has been working on, and they've been creating a pamphlet on stress cues and care based on post-menstrual age. Um, and it's something that really kind of highlighted a lot of issues we have in our clinical practice as nurses in our unit because we do need to change our culture. And it's something that is hard fault. It doesn't happen overnight. So we're fortunate that we kind of are now at least getting everybody to use positioning aids. Maybe not always appropriately, but everybody's using them. I always remind them that you can have too many just as much as you can have too little. Um, 
And we're hoping that once this booklet is finalized, which will be hopefully by the end of this month, it's going to be something that lives in our unit and it's going to give a language and a consistency to educate our families on. You can say, here's tangible information. We know that this is noxious or painful stimuli, and this is how, as a parent, you can help your baby. These are the cues they're showing you that they're stressed, that they're in pain. You know, there's several different pain scales that people use. Um, we have chosen to use the NPAS because we can have um, a pain and a sedation scale, which works effectively for our patients, especially that we have a lot of surgical patients. Um, and when you show parents the data and you show them, like, list, like, look, you're tapping on your isolate right now. Did you see your baby's heart rate went up? Your baby looks stressed. Their face is scrunched. Their fingers are splayed. When you educate them, no matter what their educational background is or their age or their socioeconomic status, it's something that if we're all providing a consistent message, that they can help further the care of their baby. Nobody realizes that the things that they're doing in the NICU could potentially affect their child later in life. Everybody wants a healthy, functional child with a good quality of life. And that's something that we really, as a NICU, need to focus on. It's not about the quantity of life, but about the quality of life. Exactly. And I, I think that's wonderful that your unit is really incorporating parents at the bedside and, and, and helping these babies in their neurodevelopmental outcomes. And it also kind of helps makes the nurse more accountable because you have a parent sitting there asking questions and making sure that you're doing things correctly because they're actively involved in their child's care. And I think that's really important because, you know, they're the parent, but they're also the patient advocate as well. Right. And exactly. So it's something that, you know, maybe I had that baby the night before and I encouraged the mom to offer a pacifier and do facilitated tucking as I was doing a heel stick for an intubated patient that's unstable and can't come out of bed. So they know now that they can be hands on during a procedure. It gives them um, something to focus on. You know, parents get in their heads a lot in the NICU. We call it kind of like a NICU psychosis. Again, nobody expects to meet us. Nobody wants to meet us. But we can offer them the tools to cope. Um, you know, our social workers are also at the bedsides rounding and helping parents in that way. You know, we have the ability as a private room NICU that they can room in with their baby. So these are all things that we try to support and encourage. Um, there have been a lot of trends in the neuro NICU world lately. Um, going off the, the statement that every NICU is a neuro NICU, it's something that I think universally is acknowledged that we need to focus on more, and not just here in the United States, but internationally. There's um, a lot of trends in Europe um, and New Zealand about different neuro-NICU initiatives, um, and even recently the NCC has supported and developed um, a neuro, I should, it's a neonatal neurocritical certification exam that's available to start testing, I think, next month. So it's being acknowledged now that the brain is what matters, and we really need to focus on the brain. Like, yes, it's good that a baby can go home on room air and bottle feeding, but we need to know that they can get beyond that, that they can walk, they can talk, they can be appropriate in school, not have other developmental or cognitive delays, that they can be socially appropriate and be able to interact as they're growing up, have peer groups, have friends. And we know that there are a lot of early intervention programs that can help with this, but based on what 
where you live, what your schooling system is like, or what your how your baby was born, with what conditions. It's not always something that's easily supplied to your baby. So parents really need to be active in their infant's care to be their advocate, not just in the NICU, but long term to make sure that they're getting the things they need to meet the goals of life. And hopefully, maybe some of our patients will grow up to be NICU nurses like you. Hopefully. (laughs) Thanks, Jen, for joining us for our premiere podcast. Join us for the continuation of our neurodevelopmental series. Head to NAN's website to subscribe to NANCAST. Thanks for letting us into your ears, and have a great day.